My name is Joe Sprange. I'm a husband, a dad, a business owner, a triathlete, an under-8s rugby coach, and I love talking to people. I started running fun runs when I was six, and I've recently completed my 50th triathlon. I've worked in advertising and marketing, but now I run my own personal training business. My goal is to be the best I can be as a husband, a dad, a triathlete, a boss, a coach, so I love talking to others who I respect on the secrets of how they got to where they are today. My passion is about finding the key to unlock potential. So that's what my podcast is all about. I interview everyday people who perform at extraordinary high levels. I collect a bunch of those keys and I share them with you. This is High Performance with Joe Sprange. Hit subscribe now to stay up to date with our latest podcasts. So thanks for joining me for episode seven of High Performance with Joe Sprange. Today, I've got Steve Solomon with me. He's an Olympian, an Uber exec, and an enthusiastic and generous person. I've followed him since the London Olympics. I was in London for the Olympics, and when I heard her ex-Cranbrook boy was running, I was very excited to follow him. Um, I ran in the CAS Athletics, and athletics had always been a big part of my life. So it was super exciting to see someone do so well, so young in the London Olympics. And I've followed his career closely ever since. Thanks for joining me, Steve. Thanks so much for having me, Joey. I, I, I'm glad that we could share the connection both with school and CAS Athletics. Yes, CAS Athletics. I, uh, I still have my CAS Athletics singlet in my, uh, you know, glory box, so to speak, that was handed down from my brothers. So, Steve, you're clearly a high performer because you've been to two um, Olympics. You've been to world championships. You're a junior world champion bronze medalist. You're a six-time Australian champion. What do you think your keys to high performance are? I think there are a lot of different keys, but I think the ones that have been applicable to me, you know, really revolve around being curious about what you're doing. And we can go into that a little bit later, but really having a deep interest in whatever it is that you're devoting your time and energy into, that curiosity is very important because it's only with curiosity that you create longevity. And that's the second part of high performance that I would say is being able to stand the test of time. You know, when I look at my career, I'm most proud of the fact that I've been wearing the Australian colours for over 10 years and it took me nine years to run a personal best time. And I think all of that revolves around the ability to 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 survive, just to stay in the game, to find motivation, to not get discouraged when things don't go well because the majority of professional anything is picking yourself back up, failing a lot recovering a lot. So those would be my two fundamental elements of high performance. The first being a, a, a very strong curiosity about what you're doing. And the second leading into a long, a longevity in, in the pursuit. Mm. So tell me the, both of those points. So curiosity, was that something you were born with? Did you, have you been the curious kid that tinkered with stuff and wanted to understand stuff your whole life? You know, I wasn't the kid who was bringing out the Lego box and trying to, you know, build things. I wasn't curious in that regard. But, you know, when I look at from a from a sporting sense, you know, my, my first love was 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 rugby. And, you know, mm. I used to go to the uh, the rugby oval every every day after school and, and kick the ball for t- uh, for the posts. You know, I loved 
John Eels yeah. and Matt Burke yeah. growing up and you know, there was just that curiosity of like, okay, what angle do I strike the ball? You know, what happens if I follow through differently? And then that eventually carried on to soccer. You know, when when everyone else grew and I didn't grow, I had to migrate from rugby to soccer. And then it became like, how does Cristiano Ronaldo get the ball to dip like he gets it to dip? You know, I'd watch YouTube yeah. videos of him doing it. I'd watch physics videos of people trying to explain him and do it. And then I'd go out in the oval and try and practice and just continually try different things. And so there's that curiosity that's always been there. And then I think there's the other side of it is just the my general curious nature of just wanting to find out more about things. And that's my path into athletics. You know, I, I, I started Cranbrook in year seven. I started high school in year seven. And during cricket trials the coach asked if I would be interested in joining the athletics team later that year and I just had no reason to say no so I said yes and then it became well if you want to join the team maybe you want to do hurdles I'd never done hurdles before but I had no reason to say no so I said yes and it was that process that eventually allowed me to find you know my my calling you know in the sport of athletics in the 400 meters and you know, I ran my first 400 meter race in grade 10, and uh, three years later, I was in an Olympic final. So, it was definitely that that curiosity element has has always been there, but it's it's more been there from like the openness to opportunity and trying to understand why things are the way they are. Yeah, yeah, I I, I, I love that that you ran your first 400 in year 10, and you're at the Olympics three years later. Now, we shared a business studies teacher, Mr. Scott Davis. He'll be delighted to listen to this uh, this episode. I have no have no doubt. Did you know you were a fast runner? Because I, I I observe my son in the playground, and he can tell you who the top five fastest runners are in his school in his grade. Like boom, right? Did you not realize that you had this talent? Like I always, I was always fast, and and in the analogy of like pick out the five fastest kids on the playground, like my name would probably be thrown around uh, in that. Mm. But you know, I was I was really a soccer player for for a very long time, and you know, I'd be playing soccer six days a week. You know, every time the school bell finished to mark the end of the day, I would head down to the oval and I'd be juggling a soccer ball or you know do, doing that. It wasn't until grade nine or 10 that I started to see myself as oh like this asset of mine on the on the on the football pitch my speed is Mm. is actually a a weapon in itself in another sport called athletics and Mm. you know I was I went from you know breaking school records to breaking inner school records to breaking state records and then eventually winning the national uh school level meets all really as a soccer player and I think part of that comes from the fact that you have a lot of you have a lot of multidisciplinary and cross-functional skills when you're a soccer player. You have to be able to jump. You have to be able to run. You have to be able to sprint. You have to mm. have a, a certain amount of general fitness and agility. And when that was harnessed with with the amazing coaching of my first proper coach by the name of Fira Di Boschina, you know that 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 all helped helped me become you know, you know this this athlete. Uh, from a from a soccer player to an Olympian, and that transition really was about figuring out where my strengths were and how to how to how to nurture those strengths um, from my soccer background into an athletic background. So, wasn't always the fastest kid. Was always a fast kid, but then with the proper guidance and and counselling and and coaching, you know, be, became a uh, an athlete. <laughs> 
Mm. Yeah, it's amazing. The, the longevity thing, I, I couldn't agree with you more. I think it's easy to be a one-hit wonder at anything, and then you, when you create a body of work over 10 years, that's phenomenal, particularly as an elite athlete. Is, where, where did that come in? When was that something that you focused on? When Because I see kids now that are 10 years old running 50 kilometres a week so they can make it to the state cross-country, right? And and I, I want to talk a little bit about advice you might give to parents of budding athletes because I think it's really important. But when was that? When did that come into your life as something you focused on? I was really lucky, and this wasn't by design. And when I say that I was lucky, it was like I didn't turn professional for a very long time, and mm. that was that was out of luck. Uh, you know, I didn't have mm. parents who who were who were pushing me down one way or coaches that were pushing me down one way. You know, I, I very clearly remember wanting to try indoor soccer in grade nine and being selected for the representative team and feeling excited about that. And then actually going out to the, to the next athletics carnival that was on that weekend and breaking some school records um, that, that were held by Daniel Batman, who was, who was an Olympian for Australia. Yeah. And um, yeah. I remember going back to my father that evening and he said, you know what this means? It means that you can't, you know, do the indoor soccer. If you want to, if you want to train for athletics, like you can't do the indoor soccer. And I, I, I kind of responded, of course I can. Like, you know, I've got, I've got time. And my dad gave me some great advice, which was you can do a lot of things, but if you want to do them well, you have to be selective about where you give your time and energy. And, you know, I think you're showing great potential and you're really enjoying athletics. So, you know, keep thinking about that. So that's where the kind of the longevity starts for me is I wasn't pushed into it. I found it. It, you know, I found athletics. I enjoyed being a part of it. And and I say that I didn't turn professional too early, which allowed me to find and fall in love with the sport. And I say that because being professional is really hard. You know, like it's it's yeah. it's it's not glamorous. Like the lifestyle isn't glamorous. The select moments are amazing and are beyond anything else that I've experienced in my life. Like I, going out and representing your country at the Olympic Games is, you know, something that's unbelievably special. But that's once every four years. You know, the, the rest of the time it's recovering from injury, coming home from training and putting your foot in a bucket of ice because you're trying to nurse an injury. It's dealing with failure, dealing with disappointment, going through periods of being really fit and strong and then two weeks later having it all crumble because, you know, you, you, you've fallen down, you've made an injury. So actually not turning professional early and not being exposed to the level and rigor of training that it takes to be a professional allowed me to fall in love with it and find motivation and find a group of training partners that I enjoyed being around. And that was the, the strongest thing. And that's, I think, what's kept me going for the last 10 years is just mm -hmm. knowing that I love the sport I have a deep, deep, genuine passion for the sport, and mm. it's that passion that's gotten gotten me through the the majority of the the hard slog of professional athletics. So, what advice would you give to a parent who has a kid that either wants to throw himself at a sport or is showing potential at a sport as a, as a young at a young age? What would you say to them? My advice, and and this is the advice that probably goes against the the, the grain. Um, you know, mm. a, a lot of parents come to me and say, Steve, you know, my son, Joey, or my daughter, Kate, you know, they're good at sport, but they're never going to be an Olympian or they're never going to, you know, represent 
their country or their state or, you know, maybe not even make the A team in school. Um, so maybe you can just get them to ask, you know, focus on other things that they're good at, maybe focus more on their academics. And I always say to parents that that would be the biggest disservice that I could ever give your child. So I'm not going to do that. My biggest advice to parents is, and this, I don't have kids. I got to preface it. I don't have kids um, yet. I hope, hope to one yeah. day. Um, <laughs> yeah. But is like, if your kid is curious about anything, and this goes back to the first point on high performance, the way that they treat that pursuit is unlike anything else in their life. You know, they will be intrinsically motivated to find out more, to do more, to design their life differently. And all of that is the best environment for them to grow up. And, you know, when I look at, uh, you know, I actually had a parent come up to me, you know, a few weeks ago and was telling me about one of her sons who was really into skateboarding. And um, she was saying how, you know, that kind of shocked the parents that this kid was kind of into this subculture of skateboarding. Um, but actually it allowed him to go and discover and hang out with the best skateboarders. And now he's a board designer and the ability that he's been able to transfer the skills that he's only been able to learn because he had a passion about skateboarding into other parts of his life has changed him as a person. And I've seen that same in me. The way that I approach my life mm. is fundamentally different because of the athletic pursuit that I've been on for the last decade. Mm. And that only came from being allowed to explore things that I enjoyed. I think mm. everyone, uh, it's easy to forget that to, to move away from the average is difficult. By definition, to mm. be above average is difficult, you know, by yeah, definition. Yeah. And the only way to do that, I believe, is to be genuinely curious about it is the thing that you're going about. And mm. because when you're genuinely curious, you create longevity, you try a billion different things before you find the answer. And once you find the answer, you're able to transfer those skills and that pursuit to anything that you do. So that's my, that's my big advice to parents is whether it's sport, drama, music, anything, if you can, if you can open up opportunities for your kids so that they are intrinsically motivated, self-motivated to go and research and try different things and put themselves out there, put themselves in the game, get skin in the game. Mm. Wow. Wow. Like that's, that's in my example has helped shape me as a person. And, and I've just seen it work so well um, with, 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 with any high performer. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's, it's, 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 it's brilliant advice. Tell me, how did you feel when you got your first exceptional athletic result? Because you're, you're you're obviously a guy that sort of came to this sport quickly and you, and you moved really quickly and how do you got those results. What was it and how did it feel? You know, the first one would have been, it was, it was my first win on a senior level. Um, so on, on a senior mm. stage, it was a race down in Melbourne. It was a big competition called the Melbourne Track Classic. It was actually a big international meet that, you know, we, we, we had athletes flying in from overseas for this competition. And I remember the night before the race bringing up an email that told me that if I came eighth in the race, so last, I would have won $150. And I remember going to my parents with this great big grin on my face saying, even if I come last in this race, I'm going to win $150. And okay. My parents said, look, we're just so proud that, you know, you've been invited into the race. Whatever you win, you know, we'll double. So don't just be, be excited, Steve, like you're going to you're gonna have a bit of pocket money after this race. 
anyway, I traveled down to Melbourne the day of the race um, and lined up against Commonwealth Games uh, medalists, gold medalists, uh, world championship medalists, Olympic medalists. And, you know, the gun went off and at the 200 meter mark, so halfway through the race, I was dead last. And then I'd always, you know, I was a soccer player at this stage. And one of the things that soccer players have is they have endurance. They have to go for 90 minutes. So the back end of my 400 was always a strength. And I remember racing around the curve and actually with about five meters to go, taking the lead, falling over the finish line and winning the race. And um, it was the first time I'd ever seen my dad cry. Uh, My dad had come down uh, for the meet as well. And, you know, that was just a very, very special feeling. I was like in shock. I didn't know what happened. And then my dad, you know, was there on the finish line and I saw him cry. And that's, you know, definitely a a memorable and special moment in, in my time. Yeah, that's 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 beautiful. I, I love that. And, and how much was for first place? I think it was about three and a half grand. So I also remember coming back to that's to, good to to school, and you know, I can't believe you you made three and a half grand in forty five seconds or forty six seconds. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you know, that's yeah, that that's that's high school math for you, hey? Yeah, yeah, it is. It is. Um, I want to talk about balance, right? Because I see you, you've got a, you know, you, you, you've got a, a full-time job, you're a professional athlete. Um, I found the, you know, when I asked you to come on the show, you're like, Joe, I've had a big, busy year. I'm not doing anything till February. I thought this is an exceptionally well-balanced guy that understands that. And how do you, how do you balance everything? Like you work at Uber, you're training for Olympics and Commonwealth Games and stuff. Tell me about balance in your life. Again, this is like one of those things where it's it's probably the thing I get asked most. Like, how how do you how do you do it mm. all? How do you balance it? Mm. And the truth goes back to the fact that I've been doing it for a very long time. You know, I uh, mm. I went over to university in America because they had a term for what I saw myself as, which was a student athlete. You know, combining studies and athletics, and you know, I combine a full study load with a full athletic load. You know, there was no. Um, part-time uni or or anything in 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 the way that I did it Mm. and then when I finished uni like it was a natural progression that I would go into the workforce you know I needed that intellectual stimulation I um I craved it so I needed to diversify my time because going back to the idea of professional sports being really hard I had an experience in 2016 where I took a year off university I moved back from the United States to Australia lived and trained at the Australian Institute of Sport all I did was train and, you know, crazy things go into your mind when you know that at two o'clock you're going to be on the athletics track and at three o'clock you're probably going to be vomiting because of the intensity of the workout. And you've now got between seven o'clock when you wake up and two o'clock when you start training to think about and be nervous about that training session. So I actually mm-hmm. find that the balance is actually very complementary to what my goals are on the athletics track. And, um, and in terms of, what you mentioned, I've had a lot of experience about being able to prioritize and understand where I have, what, what bandwidth I have uh, to, mm. to, to, at different points in time. So I wish there was a magic answer that I could, could give everyone and, and mm. just say, this is how you balance it. The truth is you do it for a long period of time and you figure out what's too much. And there's been times in my life where I've had too much on, um, times where you know, I would have to almost schedule in on my calendar when I could go to the bathroom because if I didn't do that, I wouldn't wouldn't be able to do that. Um, you know, so I've I've been at that end of the spectrum. I've been at the t- end of the spectrum where I've had too much time, and I've just 
by nature of tr- spending time at those those ends found the equilibrium point for me which is where i know what i'm able to produce i know what it takes for me to produce the things that i'm dedicating my time and energy towards and then just planning my life around around those things Mm. so can i ask practical questions then like i don't know how many hours a week a, a an elite 400 meter runner needs to to train but i imagine working at uber is not a 37 and a half hour a week type of job practically what are the some of the things that you do to to make sure that you're spending your time in line with your values yeah it's a great priorities it's a great question so for me and when i when i look to join uber uh and you know this, this was back in 2018 way pre-pandemic and i'm coming in as an employee and trying to sell myself to the business that I'm the best person for the job, despite the fact that on a Tuesday and a Thursday afternoon at two o'clock, I have to leave the office because that's when I have my squad mm-hmm. athletics trainings. Mm-hmm. And instead of taking the annual leave of four weeks a year, you know, when the Olympic Games come around, you know, I'm probably looking to take eight, eight weeks a year. But in spite of all of that, I'm definitely the best person in the room. So like <laughs> hire me. And when the, the truth to that is, you know, I, I know myself very well and professional athletics teaches you to be very um, conscious of, of how you move through life. So for me, I know that I'm most mentally acute in the mornings. So mm. if I'm doing a piece of work at 4 p.m. in the afternoon and I'm doing that same piece of work at 6.30 in the morning, I'm doing it at a lot higher quality and in a lot quicker time in the morning. It's when I'm most mentally acute. So I start my work day early because that's when I get my best work done. Um, and I, and I kind of fit in the different elements of what I need to do, whether that's training wise, whether that's social commitments all around, where am I at my best? Uh, And I have a very good internal compass of that. So that's how I'm able to understand it and and do everything is I'm very efficient because Mm. I know when in the day or that I, that I, that I'm best to do certain parts of work and the same with my training. And that's kind of how I, I, I get around it. And I've just been very grateful that I've got an employer who who values that and allows that. You know, they're not, um, you know, there, there are a lot of workplaces and maybe this was more pre-COVID. But, you know, I was, remember in, in uh, interviewing across a couple of firms here in Australia and telling them that on a Tuesday, Thursday, I'm out of the office at two o'clock. And the first thing that they say back to me is, and what time are you coming back into the office? And I'd say, I'd say I'm, I'm not coming back into the office. Like I'm, I've got a track workout, then I've got a gym workout, and then I've got physiotherapy. I'm going to get home. It's going to be close to eight o'clock. Like I'll wrap up anything absolutely urgent from home, um, but otherwise, I'm, you know, I'm going to bed because I'm starting work again the next day, just after six. Mm. So it's really about knowing yourself, knowing when you work well, and um, and finding an environment that allows you to do that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Scott Davis said you used to uh, skip out on his business class a few times to go to athletics, and he said you still managed to do pretty well in business studies. So uh, it obviously hasn't affected you, affected you. Tell me, have you always been this self aware, or is it something you've had to develop? Because you 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 know yourself and you're so well, and I don't think a lot of people have that level of self awareness. It's definitely something that I, I developed. You know, I, I was not born with it, and I think you know it just it's you know. It's it's one of those things where it's trial and error, and you and you find out things about mm-hmm. yourself by by trying lots of things and by failing a lot of mm-hmm. times. And you know, I I have a very strong memory of of having an essay due in college and being behind the eight ball. I'd com- committed too much on my plate, and the essay was due at midnight. 
and I submitted at 11.59 and at 12.03, I sent the professor an email saying, don't read whatever I submitted. Um, it's not worth your time. It's not it's definitely not worth your time. I'll take whatever penalty there is and I'll have the essay to you, you know, in 24 or 48 hours. And, um, you know, it was experiences like that that allowed me and, and, and to, to be like, okay, Steve, like you overloaded your plate here. You can't degrade the quality of what you're going to, what you've already promised to commit yourself to, mm -hmm. but you can't do that again in the future. And like the academic system was like a nice, um, fail safe built in. It's like, yes, you can, you know, minus 20% on your grade, but if you're going to get a hundred percent, you minus 20%, you're at 80%. It's a much better position than handing in something that's, you know, 40 or 30%. So I've had a lot of experience with that and, and that self-awareness just comes from wanting to commit myself to a really high standard. You know, I, I don't ever want to, mm. I don't ever want to be average. This is truth. Like I just, yeah. I just want to, in everything that I do, try and raise the bar for myself because I know that when I look at other people who are raising the bar, I get energized, I get excited mm. and my bar gets lifted and I want to be able to provide that to the people I'm around. Now you've just provided me the perfect segue into a, a quote that I just love that I saw on your website and I've seen you use in the place, which is I live life enthusiastically. So my enthusiasm can excite happiness and inspiration in others. And I just think that's like, that's a beautiful thing for you um, to, 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 to want to do. Um, what do you think motivates you now in life to keep doing all of these things? Like, I mean, two, two parts. One, um, I'm, I'm surrounded by great people. And, you know, mm. part of the inspiration for where that came from is another fellow Cranbrookian, Jason Graham Knight, who um, mm. I, I'm, I'm friendly with. And, and Jason's one of those people where you can't help but leave his company feeling happy and excited because mm. all the things that he's doing is like that. And so, like, when I look at around my motivation, there's a couple of things. One, I really can love continuing to run because especially now that I'm back in Australia and and that's very important to me because I remember growing up and going to the athletics track and seeing an Olympian on the track and that just completely changed the way that I looked at athletics you know I saw the discipline that they were applying to their training I saw the intensity I saw the level of everything that they were putting on to their performance and that inspired me and motivated me and part of me running today is giving back to the athletic community in the same way. I really did feel bad about being and spending six years of my career in America and not being able to deliver that value back to, to, to being in Australia. And one of the things that I'm most proud of is the athletic squad that I've joined here in Sydney since moving back um, under the guidance of Penny Gillies, who herself was, was, was an Olympian. Everyone in the squad is, has, has run a personal best since I've, since I've joined the squad. And I really think that I've been able to show them a level of discipline, a level of eliteness, a level of preparation that they hadn't been exposed to. And that brings me tremendous joy. And I look to do that wherever I am in my life. And that actually motivates me because I've been incredibly lucky early in my life to discover the potential that we all have. You know, I was not, you know, you know a kid growing up, you would yeah, I, I, you know, I'm I'm not a Mark Zuckerberg in school. You know, I'm 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 mm. not super bright. I'm not anything like that. But I'm a kid who works hard, who is curious, who learns from their mistakes, who commit themselves, and who's not scared to step in the arena. And I think the more we all do that, 
um, in society, the more that we realize that we're stronger, we're fitter, we're smarter, we're more resilient than we give ourselves credit for. So that's that's part of really what motivates me is just hoping to be an example um, for those to and and maybe a reason to to get out and and try things. Yeah, it's 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 brilliant. It's, it's today was my son. He's he's um he's eight years old. It was his first ever school swimming carnival, and he was very hesitant about entering, uh, getting involved. I really had to sort of encourage him firmly. I don't think I pushed him, and he did it. He did his freestyle and his backstroke today, and he was so proud of himself for getting out there and having a crack. And it's an optional thing, so a lot of kids didn't go. There's only about sort of twenty five percent of the kids from school are there, and. He is as proud as punch of himself for doing it. It's 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 yeah, it's awesome. I want to talk a little bit technically. You know, I'm a triathlete. You know, I love um, physiology and all that sort of stuff. What does it feel like to run 400 meters in um, 45 seconds, or should I say 44.94, which I believe yeah. is your personal best? That's right. I mean, it's a, it, it's an amazing feeling. Um, you know, one of the things that. I, I love doing is if, if you're you're listening right now and you try and pick a spot 10 meters away from where you are and often that's you know beyond the scope of a room that someone's listening to the podcast in you know that's that's the space that we move every second when we're running the 400 meters um Gosh. <laughs> and you know like i've had you know friends and family come to the athletics track and stand in the in the lane and let me run towards them and then have them veer uh, to either side just before I'm going to go into yeah. to really understand and feel the force that, that that we're putting through the ground and you know it, it's it's a special feeling you know it's hard it's hard for people to understand the speeds that we're moving at because we're moving at it with other people who are also moving that fast um, but just like you know it's it, it's fun you know it, it it's fun sometimes it's scary because when you're moving at that speeds like your risk of injury is high um yeah so there's definitely an element to that but you know it's it's the hardest thing that i can do and 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 mm. going back to what you were saying before about motivation and everything i think doing things that are hard make us better and they make us stronger mm. and you know whether that. whether it's having a hard conversation with someone or whether it's you know, making yourself uncomfortable uh, by jumping in the swimming pool or going for a run or exercising in public or, you know, whatever it is, whether it's a physical hardship or a mental hardship, going through it and doing it is going to make you a stronger person. So for me, very few things that I could be doing on an everyday basis are harder than lining up on the track after four or five repetitions of a 250, knowing that I'm going to be vomiting after this rep, knowing that I've got to hit a certain time you know, all of these things going through your head and then going and executing on it. You know, that's just to me the hardest thing that I can do. So when I come back into the offices the next day and I realize I have to redo a formula and a spreadsheet or whatever it is that I need to do, I have this reference point and say, you know what, the next couple of hours is not going to be that fun, but it's not going to be a threat where I'm looking to puke afterwards. Like it's going to be okay. Like I'm going to be able to get through that. So I think that's an important part of it. Yeah. Um, give us a bit of um, – tell us a bit about what an average training week is for a 400-meter runner. You know, what do you do each week? It's a great question. So I have three running sessions a week, which um, depending on who's listening can sound a lot or not a lot. Um, mm. I So the reason we have three is because we keep the intensity really high. You know, one of the things that we have to do as track and field athletes is we have to compete against gravity. 
So we have to be smashing the pavement or the track every single step, every single stride versus a swimmer who will have to be in the pool swimming, you know, 20 times a week because they don't have to compete with gravity. They don't have to allow their muscles and their joints to recover in the same way that we do. So I've got three hard sessions on the athletics track. I've got three cross training sessions. So two of those are on the spin bike um, and one of them is in the swimming pool. I've got three strength uh, workouts. So in the gym, one Pilates, yeah. one Pilates workout and one kind of restoration workout with the physio. So it all adds up to around 22 to 27 hours a week, um, d- wow. depending on the week. And yeah, so it, it's a lot. And, yeah. you know, as I get older, I've started to realize the importance of refining everything that I do. So so now it's like everything that I do has a purpose and it fits into a plan versus when I was a bit younger, I just wanted to do more because I thought more was equals better. But as my body ages, um, you know, I've realized that actually more specified training is, yeah. is better. And, you know, that's seen me run personal best times in the last couple of years, which I've not been able to do for a very long period of time. And I think it's really been me figuring out how how do I train the best? How do I train the smartest? Mm, uh, and for, for for the listeners who have old bodies on the podcast, Steve, how old are you? I'm uh, 28, turning 29. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's <laughs> uh, uh, still, still still a very young fellow, mate. Um, talk to me. I, I I think we, you know, you talk about um how how you like things that are hard. Talk me talk to me about failure, time that you failed. Um, you know, and and, and what happened, and how did you recover? So I've had a lot of failure. You know, whether mm. that is obvious or not obvious you know Mm. the obvious failures are when i missed out on the rio olympics um a not so obvious Mm. failure might be you know when i came second or third at a competition that i expected of myself to win um the biggest Mm. failure i had uh, without question was was missing out on the rio olympics you know i moved you know and, and what made that big is that it was very public you know it was in the papers it was in the media but more than that it doesn't need to be in the papers or in the media for it to be a big failure what defines it as big in my mind is everyone in my life knew that I was going for that goal that I was devoting myself towards that that every decision that I was making in my life was targeted towards succeeding in those games and I didn't even make the starting line so that was that was the, the greatest failure of, of my career without without doubt uh, what happened if you don't mind me asking yeah I mean so at the 2014 Commonwealth Games, I, I tore my hamstring really badly. I needed to fly back to Australia, have surgery. Um, it was a year rehab uh, for that surgery, but that took me into 2015. But I still felt there was enough runway for me to get get a good position for, for, for the Rio Games. And in my first race of, of that season, I, I missed a qualifier by 0.1 of a second, 10, 10 hundredths of a second. And I thought to myself, I'm going to be good here. Like, that's my first race. It's going to be fine. And then I, I, I let the pressure get to me, I think, a, a lot. You know, every time I step on the athletics track, I knew that I was chasing a time. And it's hard to describe that feeling for someone who hasn't been through it, but it's an awful feeling to have stepping on the track and being like the only thing that is going to decide my success in this race is the time that I cross the line in because it removes everything else of racing. You know, for me, I enjoy racing when I get to celebrate victories and when I get to feel accomplished because regardless of, if it's raining, if it's windy, if it's hot, if it's cold, 
I was able to beat the field on the day. You know, that's where you get a lot of uh, kind of knuckles as an athlete. In that year of 2016, I didn't have any of that. You know, all that I cared about was the number that was uh, on the clock. So I had to qualify for the Olympics. You had to qualify, and the time that I needed to hit was 45.40. And I just kept missing the qualifier. I 4550, 4551, 4560, 4544 was the closest I got, four one hundredths of a second away. A margin so small that when I actually crossed the finish line, they said that I'd qualified. And I remember lying on the athletics track. I crossed crossed the line and and like 452 came up on the clock. And I was like so excited. Finally, I've hit the standard. And I'm lying on the ground, exhausted, and someone's yelling out 44. And I'm thinking in my head, that's amazing. The clock's rounded down to 44 seconds because usually when the athletic clock rounds, it rounds down. It never rounds up. But for me, it rounded up. What, what happened was my shadow tripped the final, uh, the finish line. So my, my shadow of me running triggered the camera to take a photo. And actually, when my body crossed the line, I was 45.44, not 44 seconds. So I missed out on 400s of a second. And, you know, like I committed everything to that pursuit, Joey. Like I moved my life back from America. I left my friends in the States. I left my partner in the States at the time. I moved to the Australian Institute of Sport because I thought it was the best place for me to train, best coaches, best facilities. I went across to Europe and I was going from uh, Switzerland to Germany uh, to Belgium you know I was just going everywhere I could to race to Spain and I and I, and I never got there I fell short so you know that was you know that was a very painful uh, failure and and mm. and and one that one that I would go through again though one that I would go through mm. again because the learning that that I that I took out from that experience is unparalleled to anything else that I've done um because i had to you preempted my next question that's brilliant yeah i I want to know what you learned and what the aftermath of it was like you know i remember finishing my last race which i had to qualify um which was a race in belgium and i Mm. i ran 45 point i won the race and i ran 45.60 so i was 0.2 of a second um off off the qualifier um and i just remember feeling like quite content like it was you know, it was one of those things where I gave everything, everything, and I left no stone unturned. And that was the approach that I set myself up for those Olympics. You know, every hard decision that I had to make, whether that was moving back from America, traveling back overseas from Australia, uh, entering competitions one, two days apart, every decision that I made was in the interest of me making that decision with the best information I had available to me at that point in time. And whether it was an easy decision or a hard decision, didn't matter. I would make it. So when I actually failed, I didn't feel like I regretted anything, which is to me, like when you fail and you regret something, you regret either doing something or not doing something. That's where, you know, it's like a sharp pain. That's when you kind of, you're stabbing yourself mentally. Um, I didn't have that because I didn't set myself up for that. So, but what I did do is I I missed the games. The the raw reality is that I failed to, to make the Olympics. I failed to to do the thing that I set out to do. So I had to look back at myself and look in the mirror and say, well, how am I going to, how am I going to not do this again? You know, what am I going to change about how I approach my athletics, my competitions, my training, my environment, everything so that this doesn't happen again. And it led me to this insight that I had, which was 
the question that I was optimizing for in my pursuit of the Rio Olympic Games was, where is the best place for me to train? That was a question that I was optimizing for. So the answer to that question, and it was a good question to ask, was remove yourself from university. You don't need 50 hours a week of study um, in, to, to be competing for your interests. You don't need to be with your friends or your, fa- or your family or anything. What you need is to be at the best facilities with the best coaches in the best environment to train. And I did that and it didn't work out for me. So I had to ask myself, okay, well, if the answer, if the question that I should be asking is not where is the best place for me to train, what is the question that I need to optimize for? And I realized it's a very slight modification of that question, but a very important modification. And the question that I've asked myself and optimized for since failing in Rio is where am I at my best? Where am I at my best? And that's a different question to where is the best place for me to train? And the important part of that is it's got a different answer. So it helped me internalize where am I at my best? You know, what are the elements in my life that need to be there for me to be at my best, to go as well as I can? And I realized that training and performance for me was not just about having the best coaches. And it was not just about having the best training environment. It was about enjoying where I was, being happy, having um, a dynamic life, you know, a, 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 a variety in my life being close to friends, being close to family, all these things that I thought I needed to remove myself from actually was contributing to my performance. So that was a, that was the greatest learning that I had. I've redesigned my training program. I did redesign my training environment. And since missing out on those games, I, I've never missed a major championship uh, since missing out those Rio uh, Olympics. I've run personal best times. I've been awarded the captaincy of the team. You know, mm. all of this amazing growth has happened and it wouldn't have happened if I hadn't, had that very painful experience mm. of Missy Ad and Rio and, and really made me look into the mirror, figure it out. What was it that makes me successful? Mm. Where am I at my best? What are those elements? Mm. And create an environment around myself to make sure that I'm realizing and remembering that my performance on the athletics track is mm. bigger than my coaching and, and bigger than the facilities that I get to, to run on every day. Yeah, I, I love the sort of sense of gratitude about the the negative experience. What was the immediate aftermath like? Like, you know, after the race, did you call your parents, tears on the phone? Like, what happened? I didn't, you know, I, it was just one of those things where, like I said, I just kind of felt contempt. Like, it was like one of those yeah. things where I'd given everything. Um, mm. you there was no regrets. There was no regrets. You know, it, it would probably mm. be akin to, you know, a, a football team losing, losing a World Cup final. You know, it, it's like, mm. yes, initially, like kind of there's a pain because of the, the opportunity that you had that you now have to work for again. But, you know, you, you still you still got there. You still did everything you needed to do. Like I remember, yeah, I remember calling my parents and, you know, it was, it was, it was hard. Like you don't know what to say. I think one of the things that you don't realize um, is that, Unlike a team sport like soccer, where it's, you you get to see the whole team that's around you, like I'm not the only one who was feeling that pain. You know, my mm-hmm. my family was getting asked every day. You know, how's Steve going? Is he going? To, and you know, mm-hmm. the, and then there's the extended family. You don't know the ins and outs. You know, oh, can't wait to see watch Steve in the Olympics. Not going to be in the Olympics. He never qualified. Mm-hmm. Having to explain the fact that I missed out in the Olympics by four one hundredths mm-hmm. of one second. No, that's mm-hmm. not fair. But that's how it works. You know, it's going through all of those things, and that's not um, something that was reserved to me that was my entire network uh, of people that mm. had to feel that and 
I, I do think that that kind of bonded us as well. You know, mm. it kind of made us stronger. Like, you know, what does my best friend Dylan say to me when the thing that I've been working towards with my entire energy didn't pan out? Like, how does that conversation go? Um, yeah, how do I go back tough. and embrace my family? Um, you know, how do I go and speak to my coach and return to school and my campus having taken time off to go to the Olympics? You know, all of these things were, were difficult mm. uh, moments, but again, just just great learning opportunities one of the things i like to say is when we win we celebrate and we lose we learn you know when things go yeah. right for us like that's what we do we celebrate and we should celebrate and we should enjoy celebrating but when we lose and things don't go well for us we got to take the opportunity to to look at what what can we bring from this so that we can celebrate the next time yeah absolutely what, um sort of changing changing pace a bit what led you to the US path when you finished school? You know, like what took your academic journey down there? So when I finished school, uh, I thought that I wanted to be a doctor. Um, so mm. I went to the University of New South Wales, which is where they had the undergrad med program. Mm. And this was 2011. And I'd made my first world championships team in year 12 in 2011. And I went to the university and said, hey, there's a chance that I might make the Olympics next year. and I wanted to know what flexibility there was in the medical degree. And the university um, helper kind of looked back at me like I was a ghost. Like she actually got quite um, kind of startled and, and was saying that there's no flexibility. You have to start at the beginning of the year. You can't take any time off, you know, the different weeks A and B. And I remember going home to my parents and telling them that I was in a midlife crisis at the uh, ripe age of 17. Uh, because the thing that I've been building myself towards, you know, studying medicine um, after high school was just not going to be a, a possibility if I wanted to make the Olympics. And so I thought, oh, maybe I'll do, you know, a bridging degree, you know, I'll start in something else and transfer the next year. And then just as it comes, like my mother was going through my school bag and she found all of these recruiting letters um, from American universities. And the reason she found them is because the only address the universities can get on an individual is their school address, you know, because often your results are, are tied to your school. So they would send these letters of interest to my school. I'd arrive each day and my locker would just be flooded with these letters. And if there was a mm. trash can next to me, I'd throw them in the trash can. And if there wasn't a trash can, I'd throw them in my school bag, which could also be argued as a trash can. As um, <laughs> and, <laughs> yeah. and, and it sounds silly to say, but, the truth was I thought I had blinkers on. Like there were so many things that you had mm -hmm. to do to get into medicine. You had to do the um, mm -hmm. exams. You had to do well in your HSC. You had to do all of that. Yeah. So, I, so I didn't even entertain the possibility of doing anything else, but it was when I realized that there wasn't going to be that option um, that I started to look into these letters that were in the school bag. And, you know, there were some big, big name universities there. you know, Harvard was in there, Stanford was in there, UCLA was in there, Florida State was in there. So it was when I started to look in the US system and be like, man, it's not like, it's not all like American pie. There's actually some other things that happen here in, uh, in college yeah. in America. And, <laughs> and um, I started realizing that, that they had a term for what I saw myself as, which was a student athlete and that you could mm. prioritize athletics and academics at the same time in the same environment. And it was easy because it was that that's what that's what people did. You didn't have to go against the grain. Mm. So uh, so that's what piqued my curiosity. I, I took the American yeah. uh, exams, um, was lucky enough to fluke those, get a good mark, and then it was about kind of picking the university that I wanted to attend. And 
had four wonderful years at, at Stanford in San Francisco and then a, a lovely year and a bit at uh, Duke in North Carolina. Mm. So um, tell me, like I, I uh, my sporting life and my professional life have crossed over now because I run a gym, but I think there's a lot of reasons you're a high-performing athlete that make you high-performing at Uber, right? You know, I sort of love this concept of the corporate athlete. Tell me about what you think, how your athletics has influenced your professional um, life. We haven't got enough time, Joey, to really <laughs> go through that. But, but, I, but I, it goes it goes back to the idea of like when you look after your body or when you've got a body goal that you're working towards, like from the gym, gym sense, mm. you have to design your, your life differently to if you didn't have that goal. You all of a sudden start thinking about how important your sleep is because that is going to influence your recovery. And then you start thinking about, well, what is recovery? And like, if I've got a really high demand, stressful stimulus in, in the gym or in the workforce or whatever, mm. how do I balance that um, with recovery? Mm. You know, sometimes jumping in an ice bath is the right thing to do, or sometimes actually going and having a massage or going and see physio or having a foam roll or a stretch, you know, all of this comes into mind. You have to start thinking about, the, the consequences of your actions. I think that's one of the biggest things that anyone in a physical pursuit is brought into consciousness. If I do this, then how is that going to affect, you know, if I do X, how is that going to affect Y? If I stay up late, if I, if I drink, if I eat bad foods, if I don't exercise, you know, all of these things come into mind and you realize that if you want to be your best, and I think why the athletic pursuit helps with that is, you know, once you have a feeling of being strong in your body and being healthy in your body, you don't ever want to lose that. You don't ever want to lose that. So once you've had a taste of how good you can feel when you exercise properly, when you eat properly, when you sleep properly, when you commit yourself properly and you're not procrastinating at work and you have energy and you're smiling and you're happy, you don't ever want to lose that. So that's where I think the magic is. And then the other magic is there's community. There's real community in, in physical pursuits. And it's a different, you know, it really goes back to our, you know, our ancestry, you know, doing things together, physically together, you know, it, it's different. You know, it, it, it bonds people differently. It gives us a different sense of meaning and purpose and satisfaction. So that's where I think the corporate athlete is so important because, mm. For you to look after yourself physically, it takes discipline, right? It takes discipline. For you to do it and enjoy it, it takes community. If you're bringing discipline and community to whatever you do in the office, Mm -hmm. in your family life, you know what more can what what more could you hope for in in, in being in a successful successful uh, spot? No, uh, definitely, definitely. Steve, what advice would you give to your sixteen year old self? My advice would just you know, at sixteen, I, I probably would just say just like keep keep, keep doing more things. You know, I, you know, I probably should have done a, a, a drama play in high school. You know, like that would have been something that mm. I never have got the mm. opportunity to do. And you know, I think, but going back to sixteen, being in high school, probably just continuing to say yes and try more more things than I did. You know, I never joined the debating team. Um, you know, mm. going in. And, and just doing doing more is, is, is the answer to that. Just doing more because I think the more that you do, the more likely you are to find what you enjoy and what you're good at. And I think the rest of your life is about combining what you enjoy and what you're good at and you're going to be very successful. 
Mm. Um, just a couple of uh, last questions. Talk to me about the influence your family's had on you. And that might not maybe a quick answer, but yeah, tell me about your family. I mean, I, you know, that's definitely the, you know, the, the biggest luck I've had in my life is, is the family that, that I was raised with. Um, you know, I've, I've got my father, Michael, uh, my mother, Lucille, my sister, Bianca, and our dog. I was going to say, we've always had a dog. So it's important that I say, and our current dog, yeah. Luna, um, you know, my, my family, I, I couldn't know where to start. So I think one of the things drilled into me from a very young age was was work ethic and, and, and how if you want to be good at something, you've got to work hard at it. And if you meet my father, you'll realize that there's not a harder working guy out there. Um, you know, he works seven days a week. If you see him in the house when the sun's up, like it's a weird feeling even today mm. um, because, mm. you know, he, he's leaving the house at, you know, just after six in the morning and he comes back at eight o'clock at night. Um, and he just he's just relentless in his work ethic. And I think, you know, when, when we talk about balance, one of the things that my father's always taught me is like, if something needs to be done, do it immediately. Because mm. if you wait to do it, it won't get done or won't, it, it will just get lost because there's, there's so many things to do. Um, even last night, I needed his help with something. I said, you know, can we do it sometime this week? And his response was, can we do it now? And I said, like, yeah, we can do it now. Well, let's do it now. Um, mm. So like just that proactive approach to life is something that he's taught me. My mother um, is just like the most beautiful, caring, nurturing soul. She's one of those people where, you know, she will take somebody else's pain and put it on herself if it means that they don't have to experience it. You know, that's just my mother. Um, She um, probably won't mind me saying this, but, you know, my my mother um, has chronic arthritis, basically all of her hands, and she has no dexterity in her fingers. All of her, her, her fingers and toes are fused. For a long time, I remember as a child, you know, I would have to go and fill the petrol tank up um, when we got to, this, to the petrol mm-hmm. station because my mother couldn't grip the handle. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, when we would be going out for a walk, you know, my mother would have to wear special shoes because she couldn't put her feet in a normal shoe. It was almost like a ballet-style mm-hmm. shoe that she would wear. But she never complained, ever. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that was another thing that I learned from her is whatever you're going through, you know, you're stronger than you think you are. You can handle it. You know, don't complain. Get on with it, mm. and um, mm. and just just be a good person. Um, you know, mm. just be a beautiful person. Steve, you're a wonderful mix of them both. I can see them both oh, in you no, in, you. in this interview. You know, no, but it's that yeah. warmth that you've got and that work ethic from your dad. You can see how those two together are actually really powerful for you. Totally. And then my sister, you know, w- without Bianca, you know, so much of the things I enjoy celebrating just wouldn't be possible. You know, we were mm. we were close, you know, kids growing up. You know, I get so much enjoyment. I'm an, I'm an older brother, you know, I get to, mm. and at times I've, I've done it very poorly. You know, the overprotective older brother was something that mm. was definitely around, uh, through my existence, but, you know, we have a very special relationship and, you know, it's been, you know, Bianca used to be the only person I talked to on race days. Um, you know, I wouldn't talk mm. to any, I wouldn't talk to my parents. We'd be eating breakfast and you'd have to talk around me. I wasn't going to answer them. It was just a phase that I was mm. going through but I would always talk to my sister. So there was always like a special bond that we had there and, you know, getting to celebrate other people's successes and, and, and go through life with them. You know, we've, we've been a very big family for a long time and mm. yeah, 
without my mum and sister and and father, yeah, I would be a very different person. That's that's wonderful, Steve. Um, we're we, we're going to wrap up. Is there any question you wish I'd asked you? Uh, um that's that's a good question. Uh, yeah, <laughs> I don't. I think the the only kind of parting advice that that I would give uh, mm-hmm. is just to read to reiterate that. To achieve extraordinary things, you don't have to be a freak. Um, you mm. know, you, I I remember you know watching the Bill Gates documentary on Netflix, you know, Inside Bill's Brain, and it was mm. talk, yep, yep. talking about how you know he would read two hundred pages an hour or something, and I just thought to myself, like, I just could never do that. I'm not a freak yep. like Bill Gates. Um, mm. But when I look at the most successful people in my life, no one's reading 200 pages an hour. Um, but mm. what actually makes people successful is identifying the finite four or five things, components of what they're dedicating their time and energy towards mm. that matter and being just a little bit better than average at each of those five things. And I'll give you the example in my mm. athletics. I'm not the fastest 400-meter runner on the planet by raw speed. I'm not the strongest 400-meter runner by raw strength. I'm not the tallest. I'm not the fittest. But I'm just a little bit better than average at all the things that make a good 400-meter runner, speed, Mm -hmm. endurance, ability to push themselves through pain, all of these things. And that's what allows me to get to the top of the world and be great at it. Um, Mm -hmm. And why I kind of part with that is because, you know, I love meeting new people and I love – telling my story and i just never want someone to leave uh, my conversation thinking that i'm just different to them because i'm not i'm i'm Mm. the same as 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 you are in so many different ways the only thing that really separates me is that i've had a lot of time i've had longevity a long longevity and being curious about it is what it is that i do and taking that curiosity and figuring out through a lot of trial and error what are the most important things that make up my pursuit and how can I form an environment where I just need to be a little bit better than average at each of those things and I'm going to be successful. And then it, then it comes automatically. So that, that's what I would leave on. But otherwise I've I've very much enjoyed our our time and I thought you asked some great questions and and have done some, your homework on, on preparing for this. (laughs) (laughs) Steve, uh, thank you so much. I love your enthusiasm enthusiasm and how generously you share it with it and i i'm i'm certain that um we we are going to inspire some people to 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 improve and 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 reach their potential with our conversation today so thank you so much mate my pleasure thank you joey and thank you for all the work that you're doing through this podcast and all all the energy that you're giving to to your friends and your family and you know your what do you what do you what do you call what do you call is it your members what, what do you call Oh, listeners, I suppose. Listeners. You know, it's people listening. Yeah, 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 of course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Awesome. Thanks, Steve. Great. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Steve. I love his keys to high performance. Curiosity about how things work so you can focus on your energy on the areas that will help you improve. Longevity so you stand the test of time. But my favorite key to high performance is his belief that you don't need to be 
exceptional to achieve high performance. You just need to be better. If you enjoyed my conversation with Steve, I'd love it if you left me a review and shared it with someone who you think might benefit from listening to. Stay tuned for episode eight with Amy Jones, Olympic water polo medalist and director of N-Swiss. Thank you.